The following audio is from a sermon series from the book of Acts. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Welcome to Sacred City Church. I want to remind everyone next week, this is the last week of our Acts series, and next week we're starting Advent. It's our celebration. Uh, celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ, and we anticipate that for the four weeks before Christmas. And we've done a couple things. We've bought some Advent devotionals, and we have them at the, uh, the box office in the back. This one called Counting the Days, Lighting the Candles. It's by Elise Fitzpatrick. Uh, she's an amazing author, um, captivated by the grace of God and the gospel. We really appreciate her writings around here. This one has got... Um, devotionals for adults, and it's also got a little kid's devotional. But the, little, the kid's devotional is kind of like a little lesson each day, you know? So I'm just going to be honest. You could get your older kids would, are probably going to like this one, uh, but the younger kids, they're not going to be thrilled with this, okay? My kids don't want anything except for stories, right? They want stories. So what I encourage is the men in this room, Women, if you want to grab it, grab it. But I, I, the men, we want the men to lead their families and lead their, their wives. I encourage you to buy this book and set aside some time. Um, maybe it's right at dinner time if you eat together and walk through this. You can go down to the religious supply store in the village of East Davenport. You can buy a little wreath or you can buy a little candle set. And it's a great way to celebrate, to slow down, to kind of jump into a tradition, an early Christian tradition of Advent and lighting candles. What does that mean? Listen, it's not, you know, no, there's no voodoo involved. There's no icons involved. There's no uh, religious hooey involved. It's a really, uh, it's a time to slow down and worship. And, and the lighting of the candles is, is kind of talking about the, the entrance of the light of the world into our world. That's Jesus Christ coming into our world. So we, we've got this one for you. And we also... Uh, purchased this one right here. This is called Jotham's Journey. Now, this is for younger kids. If you're like me, you've got, I've got three, six and under. Uh, they don't want none of this. <laughs> they want story. And this is um, an ad, a storybook for Advent. And it's literally every single day. There's a little piece of the story. Uh, families that have taken their kids through this told me that uh, the kids would like try to steal the book, try to figure out what's coming the next day. It's a really intriguing story. And it helps uh, anticipate the coming of Jesus Christ. So my family, we're going to do this this year. Starts December 1st. That's next Sunday. So we've got, I think we bought a, a few copies of these back there. You can obviously get them on Amazon, but what we're doing is we're selling them for half price. So I think we bought them for 10 or 12 and we're selling them for five bucks. Okay. So pick these up. Men, this is an opportunity for you to uh, lead your family spiritually in this Advent season to slow things down to peel your kids' hands from the catalogs, right? My daughter, she's memorized one thing. Whatever's on commercial, whatever the commercial's about, Dad, I want that for Christmas, right? That's, my, my daughter is just repeating that. Dad, I would really love that, and I want that for Christmas, right? And we have to teach our kids that Christmas is not about consumerism. It's not about what we can get. It's about Jesus Christ coming to this earth. And it's, it takes concerted effort to make that happen, parents. Your kids don't just grow up into um, contented, God-fearing, Jesus-loving believers. They don't do that by accident. They don't coast their way there. We have to lead them there. And this is one opportunity to take the lead and lead them in this season. All right? So I'm going to encourage you to do that. And um, that's all. I think it's the only announcement I've got for today. And I'm going to pray, and we're going to jump in because we've got a lot to cover this morning. Father, we thank you for being so gracious to us. What a wonderful hymn. 
What a wonderful poem that you led one of your servants to write 200 years ago or 100 and something years ago. This is your world. This is our Father's world. And Father, we proclaim this morning our Father's gospel. And I ask that you would anoint my mind to think clearly, that you would anoint our ears to hear clearly, that you would anoint my vocal cords to proclaim the words of heaven that you have written in this um, book of Scripture. I pray that our hearts would believe it. I pray that we would be motivated, we'd be moved, that we would hear something new, see something new, experience something new of you today. That this is for your glory, this is for our joy. In Jesus' name, we say, amen. All right, so I got a lot to cover. Um, We're going to be moving pretty quick, I think. Uh, but I think it's going to be uh, it's going to be helpful for us. So we've we've spent the last four weeks going through the book of Acts. Uh, we can't go verse by verse through the entire book. We just don't have that time. Hopefully, God willing, someday we will be able to do that. But today, what I wanted to do is kind of catch us up and then give us a highlight of the book of Acts. So we're really going to this is going to be kind of like a highlight reel hitting the book of Acts. But before we do that, let me kind of set the tone by telling you this. Most of you already know. My favorite story, I love to read, okay? I'm always reading nonfiction and biographical stuff, but I'm also always reading narrative. And people ask me, Justin, how many times, if somebody asked me this on the plane ride, how many times uh, have you read Lord of the Rings? And I honestly cannot answer because I, I'm honestly always reading Lord of the Rings. It's always, I just open it up. I, maybe I don't read it for two months and then I open it up and I'm at wherever I'm at and I just keep reading. I just jump right in. I'm constantly reading it because why? It's my favorite story of all time. And if, you've, if you're familiar with this, early in the story of Lord of the Rings, we see a young hobbit who's named Frodo. And he loves listening to the great stories. He's like my kids who just gather around a great story. <clears throat> Last night, as I was telling my daughter, she, we, we read the Bible and then we do a story and then she wants me to make up a story. And I make up, a, so I make up a story and, you know, it's always about Princess Zoe and somebody's coming to rescue Princess Zoe. And then last night, Javin was the hero and he rescued her. And then I said, and then they lived happily ever after. She says, no, they get married. I go, uh, no, but it's just like, she's got in her mind the story. This is how it should go. And no, they get married. Princesses, they got to get married. So, but so Kids love stories. We all love to be kind of written into a story. We want, a, we want a story that's kind of about us. And early in the story of Lord of the Rings, we see this hobbit, this Frodo, he loved the old stories. He loved stories of adventure and epic tales. We see Frodo's um, reading the stories of all this great adventure. We see him with his friends singing songs over pints of ale. Then he goes back home to his little hobbit hole, to his everyday life. He's just an ordinary hobbit. But if you're familiar with the story, you know that Frodo soon finds himself caught up in the greatest story of all Middle Earth, greatest story of all ages. The ring of power has come to him, and now no longer can he just read the great stories of old and then close the book and then put his head to a pillow and sleep at night. Now he finds that he has been written into this great story and he, as a little hobbit, has a role to play, a very important and unlikely role. You keep hearing this over and over to the story. The most unlikely of characters, the most unheroic of characters, this little hobbit. People laugh about hobbits, but he's been written into this epic tale and he's got a huge part to play. 
And in one of my favorite scenes of the movie or scenes of the book, in this moment where things are really dark, their leader has, they think their leader has been killed. Um, another one of their men have kind of turned on them. The fellowship is breaking. It's really dark and dim and they've got a huge daunting task ahead of them. They don't think they can accomplish it. This is what Frodo's friend, Samwise Gamgee says. Listen to this. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered, full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it'll shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you. That meant something, even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now, folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't. They kept going because they were holding on to something. Frodo says, what are we holding on to, Sam? That there's good in the world, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for. I think this is a great moment in the story when Sam and Frodo realize that they're a part of this epic story. And they have a part to play. It's not just about them. It's actually about all of Middle Earth. The whole world is involved. And though they feel insignificant, they feel meaningless. How could one little or two little hobbits, how could we do anything to help? How could we bring any change to this world? How could we make an impact they realize they've been written into something bigger than them. And I, I really resonate with Frodo here, not just because I'm gravitationally challenged, but because I grew up reading these, the stories of the Bible like a collection of great stories. I learned of great heroes, David and Samson and, and uh, Moses and Joseph, and they were all like disconnected pieces. Go be like David and go, you know, don't be really like Samson, right? But all of these like morals and all these kind of tales, and they didn't really make sense. They didn't really link together to create kind of like a dominant narrative that linked everything together. Most people, I think, read the Bible that way. and They don't understand that there's an overarching story to all of Scripture. See, the Bible was broken apart for me um, in such a way that I didn't see the string that ran, the, 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 the line that ran through the whole thing. See, when we, when we read the Bible in such a way, we not only miss this uh, mega narrative, but we also miss how we have been written into God's story. That like Frodo, we should one day wake up and realize we're a part of this huge story that God's written. That we have a piece to play. Theologian Christopher Wright says that if you had to reduce the Bible to its baseline narrative, it'd be called the mission of God. The mission of God. What does that mean? God has a mission to be known and worshipped. That has always been his mission. He made himself known through creation. This is our father's world. Through his covenant he made with Abraham and Israel, he made himself known through the Ten Commandments and the law given to Moses. But just over 2,000 years ago, God did his greatest work. He made himself known through his exact representative, his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus perfectly revealed the Father's heart toward us. And now, we don't have like this mist 
We don't kind of have to, you know, what is God like? Let's look at creation. Well, let's look at the Ten Commandments. Now we can, what is God like? Let's look at Jesus. Jesus shows us what God is like. So the Bible then says that we exist because God has this mission to be known and worshipped. That's why humans exist. We exist to give God glory and enjoy Him forever. It's why we're here. And what we have discovered over the past few weeks as we've been studying the book of Acts is that the church exists for the same purpose. To glorify God, to know God, and then make Him known to the world. That's why God created the church. And to make him known to a world who doesn't believe in him, we saw a couple weeks ago, it's impossible, right? The church needs and Christians need to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God to be enabled to even accomplish anything for this mission. Last week, Sam showed us that the means of God fulfilling this mission to be known and to make himself known and to be worshipped, his means is what? Ordinary people. Now that's kind of crazy to us. We think God only uses heroes and God uses people with great talent and great uh, gifts. But actually last week we saw how God uses ordinary people. Fills them with boldness. They proclaim the gospel and God does amazing things through them. But one thing that I've been trying to answer week after week in this series um, is just how did we get here? How has this little ragtag group of poor, uneducated, ordinary people from over 2,000 years ago, how did they turn the world upside down in such a way that we are gathered here today worshiping this God-man, Jesus Christ? That their actions have reverberated over 2,000 years, over 6,000 miles to us today where we're worshiping the same God. We've talked about how the rise of the Christian church is is an amazing phenomenon. And one of the facts that testifies to the validity that Jesus Christ actually rose from the dead. I'm not going to recover all that this morning. But I just want to give you, here's my horizon. This is where I'm taking us this morning. I believe the reason we are here today is because God's mission is an unstoppable mission. I believe the reason we're gathered today is because God has a mission to be known and worshipped, and that mission is actually unstoppable. Now, there's a lot of implications to that statement. First, it's God's mission, not ours. God wants the world to know and worship Him. That's His mission, and He is committed to it. He's the one in charge of making it happen. He is using us. He has graciously written us into his drama of redemption. But it's important for us to know that it's his mission to accomplish, not ours. And secondly, because it's God's mission, it is therefore unstoppable. It can slow down. It can take some setbacks and go through seasons of decline. But God's mission of making himself known to the world is absolutely unstoppable. So that's where we're headed today. That's where we're going. Now, let me show you what I mean. I want you to open up your Bibles, and I really do want you to open up your Bibles or flip open your fake Bible on your app, whatever. Flip it open. Find it. Acts chapter 4. We're going to be going, because it's a highlight reel today, we're going to be flipping through the book of Acts quite a bit. So I want you to find it and go with me. Acts 4, 26. Acts 4, 26. When you're there, say there. Acts 4, 26. <clears throat> I had to read, start in 26 because we need a little bit of context, okay? Let's, when you're there, say there. 
Okay. For the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly, in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Look at this, verse 28. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. That is, a, that is a statement you need to highlight. That is a statement you need to underline. To do whatever God's hand and God's plan had predestined to take place. Why is the mission of God unstoppable? Because God is sovereign. His hand guides all things to do what his predestined plan has already determined. He is completely in charge. Nothing happens that he doesn't already have written into his plan. That is an amazing phrase. Nothing happens but what his hand and his plan had predestined to take place. Now listen, you've got to think about what he's talking about. He's talking about the, the persecution and the murder of Jesus Christ. He's saying nothing happened but what God's hand and God's plan had already predestined. So God's hand had written in the sin of the Jews. God's hand had written in the sin of the Romans to persecute and to kill Jesus Christ. God's hand had written that in. His plan had predestined it to happen. It was definite. There was no like, is Jesus going to die today or not? Maybe he just might miss out on this epic event. And he might not actually get crucified. It was written in, it's going to take place. It's going to happen. Now, this, God, nothing happens except what God's hand and God's plan predetermines. This should give us great confidence. But most of the time, or many times, that phrase is just confusing. How does God have everything predestined for his mission to move forward if he allows all kinds of difficulties and evil things into our lives? It doesn't feel like God is in control most of the time. It doesn't feel like his plan is perfect and is predestined. Well, listen, I understand that objection. It's a totally reasonable objection. But I want to give you two things. First, you've got to remember God's mission is not our comfort. God's mission is not for us to have an easy, breezy life here on this earth. We get that in the heavens and the new creation. While we're on this earth, God's mission is to be known and worshipped. He wants all people from the CEO to the, of the Fortune 500 company to the indigenous tribes of Africa. He wants them all to know him and to worship him and then make him known to others. That's the mission. Not for us to feel good. Not for us to have a perfect life. Not for us to be healthy and wealthy and have things go well for us here on this earth. His mission is to be known and worshipped. So remember, first, God's mission is for his glory, not ours. And secondly, we need to know that God's ways are above our ways. He does things and allows things that are horrible. But ultimately, they bring about his great purposes. And that is what we're going to see today. And that may make you itch. That might make me you squirm a little bit. I think the Christian in America likes to read the Bible and pick and choose what they want to see and what they don't want to see. And I think we need to see 
this for Because God is in control. He's absolutely sovereign and he's good. And his mission is not going to fail. It's unstoppable. Now let's jump in. I want you to go. Well, what we saw in Acts 4.29, we saw two things. God's hand and God's plan is predestined to take place. And we also see Stephen and some disciples. They're praying for what? They pray for boldness. God, fill your servants with great boldness to preach the gospel. That's a great prayer, right? Now, let me answer this. How do you think God's going to answer this prayer? Fill us with great boldness, God. How is God going to answer that prayer? I'm going to tell you, God answered this prayer in an absolutely devastating and shocking way. If you want a God that you can control, if you want a God who's going to do with your life what, exactly what you want him to do, which usually means comfort and ease and exaltation, then you don't want the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible is not about your glory. The God of the Bible is about his glory. The God of the Bible does things his way. The only true, good, and perfect way. And what we're going to see is these believers come together. The Spirit fills them. Give us the Spirit to preach with boldness. God says, you betcha. But it does not come the way they think it's going to come. This new church, listen, it's predominantly in Jerusalem right now. Right? That's where the church is at. It's all, they got one church, the new church of Jesus Christ. 3,000 people got saved to add to the 120. So there's about 3,120 new believers in Jerusalem. We saw how they're living, spread out into homes, eating together, preaching the gospel, learning the scriptures, praying together, taking the sacraments. That's what's going on. But it's in Jerusalem. This is still just a Jewish movement, but God has bigger plans than just the salvation of Jerusalem. So how will the sovereign God answer these believers' prayers for boldness while at the same time expand the church outside the city of Jerusalem? How's God going to do it? Go to Acts chapter 7, verse 51. And just turn to the right or flip it. You ready? Say there. Ah. We're, we got a lot. We got a long way to go. So Acts seven fifty one. when you're there, say there. All right, let's read it. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged. This is the Jewish leaders. And they ground their teeth. Okay, here, let me give you some context. Stephen is preaching a gospel-rich, confrontational sermon filled with boldness. Do you hear that? Stephen prayed for boldness. God filled him with his spirit. He's preaching boldly. Let's keep reading. And they ground their teeth at him. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. It's a gift of God. And he saw the glory of God. Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears and they rushed together at him. Do you see this? The Jewish leaders, Stephen's preaching so boldly and so convicting. He's convicting their heart through the spirit. So what do they do? They plug their ears, literally, they run at him ah, with their ears, with their fingers in their ears. They don't want to hear it anymore. They don't want to hear the gospel anymore. And they charge Stephen. Verse 58. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses, now, this, if you're reading the Bible and you're in this generation, that means they threw rocks at him. And he didn't smoke something. Okay. They're, throw, they're stoning him. They're throwing rocks at him. Right? And the witnesses, look, 
laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. That means he died. Verse 8, 1. Chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. Okay. Do you see what just happened? Do we see what just happened? God answered Stephen's prayer for boldness and it just got him killed. Lord, give us boldness. Okay. That's going to get you killed. He, they stone him to death. Stephen proclaimed the gospel boldly and the Jewish religious leaders stoned him to death. And then we see, this is just a phenomenal, only God's hand can write a story like this. We see this little guy named Saul standing there giving his full approval and his full consent and he's kind of holding the coats for everybody. Hey man, you, you, you really need to wind up if you want to stone somebody right. Let me take your coat. He's, they're taking layers off so they can really pull back and let him have it. And Saul's standing there going, kill him. Get him. Get him. Oh, you missed a spot. Get him. Right? Saul is doing this. In this event, look at verse 8, or chapter 8, verse 2. And there arose on that day, I'm sorry, that's the rest of verse 1. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of what? Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Okay? So this event, the stoning Stephen prays for boldness, full of the Holy Spirit, preaches the gospel. He gets himself killed. This event starts a persecution of the church in Jerusalem. It starts a persecution against Christianity and causes what? The early church to spread out. To where? To Judea and Samaria. Do you remember the Great Commission? Do you remember what Jesus said before he was sent to the Father? I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. You're going to be my witnesses where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Wow. God's mission, the church in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. God is now at work accomplishing his mission. How does he do it? How does his sovereign hand and his sovereign plan have it written in his script to do it? Through the death, through the murder of one of his Servants, Stephen's blood hits the ground and is the impetus for pushing out the church into Judea and Samaria. So God just sparked the expansion of the church with the murder of Stephen. Boldness got him killed, but it also set off a spark that is about to ignite the whole world on fire. God's hand and God's plan. What I want you to see here is that God is accomplishing his mission. He's not doing it the way any one of us would have wanted him to do it. But the gospel is on the move. It's moving out and away from the center. It's centrifugal moving away from the center in Jerusalem. And how did his hand and his plan predestine that to happen? Through the death of one of his beloved followers and the persecution of his church. 
And the modern day prosperity gospel of health and wealth is all that God wants for you is for you just to be happy and have a good life on this earth. To be without sickness and without struggle and to have plenty of money in the bank and drive a Bentley. And there's this bogus new show on television called The Preachers of L.A. that are preaching this heretical false false gospel. Oh, man, I want to say bad words right now. Shame on them. Shame on them. Obviously, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, didn't get the memo about the prosperity gospel. Preach the gospel with boldness, and you should be driving Bentleys and having three huge mansions like P. Diddy. That's what he says on the show. Watch a little clip of it. That's what he says. Obviously, Stephen didn't get the memo. Because Stephen prays for boldness, and God smashes him like a gnat. And he uses the blood of a martyr, the blood of Stephen, as a seed of the church. That blood is spread out. It's like those helicopters on trees. They die, and then they fall, and they spread a million places. And as they die, and as they fall, new trees grow up. said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And what we're going to see as we continue to travel through the book of Acts is that as the gospel moves out from the center, people start meeting Jesus. That's what happens. People meet Jesus. Disciples are made. Churches are planted. In chapter 8, we, we see an Ethiopian. This is it's a Jewish movement. It's all happening in Jerusalem. God smashes it. Now it expands out. Now we see in chapter 8, this Ethiopian eunuch, he meets Jesus. He gets brought into the church. He gets baptized in the name of Jesus. Man, I wish I had more time. One day we're going to go verse by verse to the book of Acts, Lord willing, and I can't wait for that day to happen. But today I've just got time for the highlights. Open up, go to nine, uh, chapter 9, verse 1. When you're there, say there. Okay. But Saul, remember Saul, the coat holder, right? Coat holder, persecutor still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, that's what they used to call, Christians are first called Christians at Antioch, before it was called the way, men or women, he might what? Bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. Right, stop right here. So we see what's happening. Saul goes, man, I, I enjoyed that stoning so much. I'd like to do that again. Can we make this like a weekly ritual? Let's just find these Christians and snuff them out. I'm sick and tired of hearing of this Jewish sect talking about Jesus being resurrected. Let, give me some papers so I can go find them where they are and snuff them out. It's a ridiculous little cult. This is a Jewish sect. It's, gotta be, it's just got to be snuffed out. They say, okay, go do that. Saul, go do that. What, is, what happens? Verse 27. And he arose... Oh, nope, I'm on the wrong one. I'm sorry. Uh, verse 3. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Ooh, union with Christ. You persecute the church, you persecute Jesus. And he said, uh, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. I love this. But rise and enter the city and you'll be told what to do. <laughs> so I'm going to kill Christians. Hey, who are you messing with? Uh, who are you? I'm Jesus. Get up. I'm going to tell you what to do. 
I'm going to get up and you're going to tell me what to do. There's no option. Jesus isn't, keep keep the band playing. Keep the band playing. There's one more here that's going to follow Jesus. Keep the band playing. He's not pulling on heartstrings. Saul's hand had written his own life story. Saul's hand said, I'm going to kill these Christians. This is my life. This is the trajectory that I'm going to take. And Jesus said, "Uh, no, I've written you into my story. Go over there and I'm going to tell you what to do. The sovereign hand of a sovereign God and a predestined plan. Look at verse 18. And, it, and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. This is called regeneration. And he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. Paul, Saul, he's not named Paul yet. He's an unlikely convert. Doesn't even want to follow Jesus. Actually hates Jesus, hates the people of the way. He's persecuting them. And God says, I want you on my team. And the funny thing is, God says to Ananias, look at this verse, go to verse 15. But the Lord said, go. He's telling Ananias to go find Saul. For he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children. Look at this, look at verse 16. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. How's that for gospel proclamation? Here's the gospel. Go, you, you're on my team now. I'm going to show you how much you're going to suffer for my name too. Health and wealth, prosperity gospel, not for Saul. God has written him into his plan. God has written him into his story. This is a huge moment for the young church. One of the chief persecutors has just been converted by God. And it's now switching teams. God's hand and God's plan has Saul written into his mission. Did Saul want to be in this script? No, absolutely not. But God is the author, not human beings. God chooses the people to play parts in his story of redemption. He's writing it. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. He's the one who writes people in. You don't choose to be in it. He writes you in it. Now, With that background, open up to chapter 11, verses 19. And again, I'm hitting the highlights. Acts chapter 11, verse 19. When you're there, say there. Okay. Now now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word, look, to no one except Jews. Okay, do you see that? Why did they spread? Persecution that arose because of the murder of Stephen. God God smashed Stephen. He spread him out. He moved him out from Jerusalem. That's why. But they're only preaching the gospel to the Jews. Now look what's happening here. Verse 20. But there were some of them. Listen. What's about to happen here? We don't even know the disciples. We don't even know who did it. Some of them. Nameless men. Nameless men, nameless women, written into the hand of God, written into the story of God, about to do something world-shaping, world-changing, and the Bible doesn't even put down their name for us. But some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, 
spoke to the Hellenists. That's the Greeks. The Greeks speak Jews. Also preaching the Lord Jesus. And look at this. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So this is what happens. It's a Jewish movement. It's all in Jerusalem. They get spread out because of the persecution. God literally moves them out to the persecution. And one of these dudes, just some of them, some guy, just goes, I'm, I'm going to try to share the gospel with somebody who's not a Jew. Let's see what happens. So they share the gospel with somebody who's not Jewish. And what happens? The hand of the Lord is with them. God gives them the Holy Spirit and they are added to the church. God's kingdom is expanding. Now it's no longer a Jewish movement. Now it's even involving the Greeks. This is world changing. This is world shaping. This is something different than what happened in the Old Testament. God's inviting all the nations in. So this is a huge moment in the church. God has used the death of Stephen as the impetus for the birth of the church in Antioch. Now there's a church planted here in Antioch. Let's keep reading. Verse 22, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Okay, so this is what happens. Greek people are being added to the church. The church in Jerusalem is like, I don't know if that's theologically accurate. I thought this was just going to be a Jewish, you know, Jesus was Jewish, Israel. I think this is, I don't, this is concerning me. Barnabas, go to Antioch and see what all this fuss is about. All these people that aren't Jewish are being added to the church. Go check it out. Verse 22, the report of this came to this, or verse 23, that when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose for he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. There's this new church in Antioch. Barnabas now goes and gets Paul and brings Paul back to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. This newer convert, this Paul, who really wasn't accepted by the Jewish believers anymore, this new convert, I'm sorry, Saul, his name will get changed to Paul, he gets brought into this new church at Antioch, and he's incubated there for a year with Barnabas. He's there for a year sharing the faith, evangelizing, training up the church. Saul is there. So, what we see here is this new church at Antioch, they're just crushing it, right? They're preaching the gospel, the Spirit of God's being poured out, new people are being added to the church. It's, it's the same thing that was happening in Jerusalem, now it's happening in Antioch. Unbelievers and Gentiles are being added to the church, and it's creating a huge theological problem which is going to lead to this council. The apostles come together in Jerusalem called the Jerusalem Council. And they're basically going to say, can we, add, can we accept these, uh, unbe- these previously unbelievers and these pagan Gentiles? Can we accept them into the church? And the, the, basically the argument is pretty simple. Um, they heard the gospel and God gave them the Holy Spirit. I think he accepted them. We probably should too. If they've been given the gift of the Spirit, who are we to keep them out of the church, right? God gave them the ghost. We better treat them like brothers and sisters and give them communion, right? Now look at chapter 13, verse 1. 
We're, we're getting close to where we're headed. Chapter 13, verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who's called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart from me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Okay. Now this is one of my favorite sentences in all of the book of Acts. It's one of the favorite instances and stories in all the book of Acts. Saul, do you remember who he was? Trying to snuff out the expansion of God's church. Now, listen, listen, let me just tell you that like this. Saul is stopping the expansion. All right, we've got to keep it in Jerusalem and then we're going to kill him. We've got to keep it out expanding. So what does he do? He's holding the cloaks and they kill Stephen. Killing Stephen does what? Pushes them out, causes them to plant a church in Antioch. He's on his way to persecute him. Jesus saves him and says, go wait, i got stuff for you to do. Where does God send him? To the church at Antioch. Why was Antioch planted? Because of his persecution. Oh man, this only God's hand and only God's plan. And now, the church that was started because of his persecution is now the church that's praying over him and sending him out to plant more churches. It's just... This guy who later will write two-thirds of the New Covenant, his name will be Paul, he's being sent out. He was former persecutor, tried to snuff it out. Now he's being sent out full of the Holy Spirit to plant more churches. He's been incubated, kind of like a church planting residency in Antioch, and then he's being sent out to plant churches. Amazing. So, now, if you think that was fast, I'm about to pick up speed. We're about to cover 2,000 years in the next 15 minutes. I want to make sure you're tracking with me, okay? The church at Jerusalem was planted on the day of Pentecost when 3,000 people were added to the 120. Then Stephen's sermon and murder caused them to spread out and, the church, and then churches were planted in Judea, Samaria, and the Ethiopian meets Jesus. Then the Antioch church gets planted. All right. At the same time, Peter and Philip are now planning churches in the most important cities of Lydia, Joppa, Caesarea, Tolmas, Ashdod. Okay. We see here, Paul is going to Syria and beyond planting churches. In Acts chapter 16, verse 10, Paul converts Lydia. She's the first Christian convert in Europe. From there, Paul goes to Rome, Athens, Corinth, and Ephesus, sharing the gospel and planting churches. Do you feel the pace quickening here? Can you see how the gospel is on the move? And as the gospel goes out, churches are getting planted further and further from the center to where things have started. Do you feel that? Okay. Well, the pace is about to pick up a little bit faster. Now, I wish I had more time, but this is just the highlights. So buckle up. In AD 51, Paul begins his second missionary journey. 
a trip that will take him through modern-day Turkey and on into Greece. In AD 80, the first Christians are reported in Tunisia and France. In AD 112, Pliny the Younger reports rapid growth of Christianity in Bithynia. In AD 150, gospel reaches Portugal and Morocco. In AD 174, the first Christians are reported in Austria. In AD 197, Tertullian writes that Christianity has penetrated all ranks of society in North Africa. In AD 200, the first Christians are reported in Switzerland Switzerland, and Belgium. In AD 202, Roman Emperor Severus issues an edict forbidding conversion to Christianity. That's in AD 202. Note that. In AD 280, the first rural churches emerge in northern Italy. Christianity is no longer exclusively in urban areas. In AD 313, Emperor Constantine issues the Edict of Milan legalizing Christianity in the Roman Empire. Okay? So 100 years outlawed, 100 years later, he legalizes it. Okay? AD 378, Jerome writes, From India to Britain, all nations resound with the death and resurrection of Christ. AD 380, Roman Emperor, I'm not going to say his name, makes Christianity the official state religion. 8386, Augustine of Hippo is converted. AD 432, Patrick goes to Ireland as missionary. We celebrate him every year by drinking green beer. <laughs> AD 596, Gregory the Great sends Augustine and a team of missionaries to what is now England to reintroduce the gospel. The missionaries settle in Canterbury and within a year baptize 10,000 people. AD 650, first church is organized in Netherlands. AD 680, first translation of Christian scriptures into Arabic. AD 740, Irish monks reach Iceland. AD 828, first Christian church in present-day Slovakia. AD 867, all Serbian tribes are fully Christianized. AD 957, Princess Olga of Kiev is baptized. AD 1244, Christians are reported in Lithuania and King Mendegas being is baptized in 1251. AD 1382, the Bible is translated into English from Latin by John Wycliffe. AD 1491, the Congo sees its first group of missionaries arrive. Under the ministry of these Franciscan and Dominican priests, the king would soon be baptized in a church built at the royal capital. AD 1494, first missionaries arrive in the Dominican Republic. AD 1498, the first Christians are reported in Kenya. AD 1506, mission work has begun in Mozambique. 1509, the first Christian building constructed on Puerto Rico. 1515, Portuguese missionaries begin work in Nigeria. 1523, Martin Luther writes a missionary hymn based on Psalm 67. May God bestow on us his grace. It has been called the first missionary hymn of Protestantism. 1529, Franciscan Peter of Ghent writes from Latin America that he and a colleague had baptized 14,000 people in one day. 1531, we're halfway there. 1531, Franciscan Juan de Padilla begins a series of missionary tours among Indian tribes southeast of Mexico City. 1536, northern Italian Anabaptist missionary Hans Obrecker is burned at the stake in Vienna. 1537, Pope Paul III orders that the indigenous people of the Americas of the New World be brought to Christ by the preaching of the divine word with the example of the good life. 1540, Franciscans arrive in Trinidad and are killed by cannibals. 1541, Franciscans begin establishing missions in California. 1549, Jesuit missionaries led by Xavier arrive in Japan and build a base in Kyushu. Their aggressive proselytizing was most successful in Kyushu with about 100,000 to 200,000 converts. 
1553, Portuguese missionaries build a church in a Malacca town, Malaysia. 1554, 1,500 converts to Christianity are reported in Siam, now called Thailand. 1573, large-scale evangelization of the Florida Indian nations and tribes begins with the arrival of Franciscan friars. Augustinian orders enters Ecuador. 1582, Jesuits begins work in mainland China. Manteo becomes the first Af- American Indian to be baptized by the Church of England. 1594, first Jesuit missionaries arrive in what is now today Pakistan. 1598, Spanish missionaries push north from Mexico in what is now the state of New Mexico. 1630, an attempt is made by the, in the El Paso, Texas area to establish a mission among, among the Manzos Indians. 1644, John Elliott begins ministry to Algonquin Indians in North America. 1649, Society for the Propagation of the Gospel in New England formed to reach the Indians of New England. 1654, John Eliot publishes a catechism for American Indians. 1690, the first Franciscan missionaries arrive in Texas. 1706, Irish-born Francis McAmee, who has been an itinerant Presbyterian missionary among the colonists of America since 1683, is finally able to organize the first American Presbytery. 1719, Isaac Watt, Watts writes missionary hymn, Jesus shall reign wherever the sun shines. 1733, Moravians established the first mission in Greenland. 1735, John Wesley goes to Indians in Georgia as missionary with the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel in Foreign Parts. 1743, David Brainerd starts ministry to North American Indians. 1745, David Brainerd, after preaching to Native Americans in December, wrote about the response. They soon came in, one after another, with tears in their eyes, to know what they should do to be saved. It was an amazing season of power among them. It seemed as if God had had bowed the heavens and came down, and that God was about to convert the whole world. In 1747, Jonathan Edwards appeals for prayer for world missions. In 1758, John Wesley baptized two slaves, thus breaking the skin color barrier for Methodist society. 1760, Methodists first reached the West Indies. 1782, freed slave George Lissy goes to Jamaica as a missionary. 1787, William Carey is ordained in England by the particular Baptists and soon begins to urge that worldwide missions be undertaken. 1794, eight Russian Orthodox missionaries arrive on Kodiak Island in Alaska. Within a few months, several thousand people have been baptized. 1816, Robert Moffat arrives in Africa. 1832, Tieva, former cannibal and pioneer Pacific Islander missionary, is commissioned by John Williams to work on the Samoan Islands of Mananeo. July 10th, 1833, Cadfish, near Dubuque, Iowa, a Catholic Jesuit from St. Louis named Charles Van Quickenborn baptized the children of a half-breed fox Indian, thereby having the first converts in Iowa. Later that year, in 1833, the first church was planted on Iowa soil in Dubuque by Father Mazzucchelli, a Dominican. Father Mazzucchelli also founded churches in Lee County, and he founded St. Anthony's in Davenport. In 1838, ten people gathered together in a small building on the corner of Ripley and Front Street. This was the first Presbyterian congregation in Davenport. In 1921, Dr. R.R. Brown established the Omaha Gospel Tabernacle, and the first services were held at 20th and Douglas. This would later be known as Christ Community Church in Omaha, Nebraska. In 1839, First Baptist Church is organized, had its 
first service in the home of John M. Eldridge in Davenport, Iowa. In 1854, Hudson Taylor arrives in China. 1865, Hudson Taylor forms the China Inland Mission. 1867, Methodists start work in Argentina. 1886, John Fiery becomes a missionary and he arrives in New Guinea. In 1996, Pastor Mark Driscoll plants Mars Hill Church in the Seattle, Washington area. Four years later, Pastor Mark founded a new church planning network called Acts 29 Network, hoping to fulfill the mission that was started in the book of Acts. In the year 2000, Ethan Burmeister planted Core Community Church in Omaha, Nebraska. Five years later, in 2005, Bob Thune planted Coramdale Church with a launch team of 60 from Christ Community Church in Omaha. In 2010, Amanda and I moved our family of four to Omaha, Nebraska to be incubated in the church in Acts 29 churches in Omaha to complete a church planning residency with the Acts 29 network. In June 2012, we were sent back from Omaha to plant Sacred City Church with about 30 people on our launch team. Now these are just a few of the highlights of God's absolutely unstoppable mission. Our, just our network alone, Acts 29, has planted over 400 churches in the past decade. And we have right now 400 men who, like Paul, who was incubated in the church in Antioch, we have 400 men right now being incubated in our churches, getting ready to be sent out to plant more churches. All because God has an unstoppable mission to be known and worshipped. And he has created a church for his mission. This is why we're here this morning. My prayer is that like Sam and Frodo, and one day your eyes open and you realize you've been written into an epic story. My prayer is that today our eyes would be open, that God is writing something that's been happening since the beginning of time. He's been writing the story of redemption and he's brought us into it. He's fulfilling his mission and he wants to use us to move the mission forward here in the Quad Cities. That we're here to make God known through our worship and through our witness. That we call people in, that we train them up and we send them out to make disciples. Can you believe this? Over 2,000 years of church planting and gospel preaching, all birthed by the Spirit of God on the day of Pentecost and then pushed out from the center because of Stephen's death. Let this sink in. We have church, we have been chosen. His hand and his plan are in control, but his plan has written us into this story and we have a part to play. It's a small part, like, right? Hopefully me going through that 2,000 years of Christian mission and church planning lets us know that we're going to get one line. Hopefully, if we do our part well, we play our part well, we're going to get one line in history, right? We're an extra on the scene, we're not going to be, we're not, we don't have a starring role. Jesus is the only hero. Jesus is the only star of this show. But do we want to, do we want to have this? Would you rather have a, a little piece and an epic tale? Or would you rather like my daughter, three-year-old, have a huge story in daddy's little tale that nobody else knows about? That's not really, that's not real. 
Do you want to be the star of your own little show? Or would you rather have a supporting role in the greatest story ever told? Because listen, make that decision. Every day you live like you're either part of God's story or you live like you are the author of your own story. And you have to write your own meaning into it. You have to write your own purpose into it. How are you going to find satisfaction? You're going to self-actualize that? You're going to just determine that in your mind and then go after it and find it? You're never going to find it. And I don't want you to discover that on your deathbed. Many of us right now are living our lives like we're the main character in our own story. Let me tell you, that's a tiny life. It's going to be here today, gone tomorrow. It's like a vapor. You're going to live for your glory. That's a good way to waste your life. To get to the end of it and you've got some stuff accumulated. And what are you going to do with that stuff? Give it to your kids? Pass it on? It's all going to be gone. Your retirement account, it's all going. It's all gone. You're not taking it with you, right? There's no U-Hauls behind hearses. You don't get to bring nothing with you. You go naked, you came into the world, naked you leave. Whose glory are you living for? If you live without being in God's story, without playing a part in his story, you have wasted your life. But if but this is the brilliance. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to God has written if you're here and you're hearing the gospel, he has written you into his story. Would you respond? Would you step into this calling that God has placed in your life? God is inviting us in to a bigger story where our lives can have a deeper meaning. When we live for his glory and we play a part in his mission to make himself known to the world, our lives can have eternal significance. This is why we exist. Make disciples. That means we make Jesus known to our friends families, co-workers, anybody who, li- who, li- who our lives come in contact with. We do this through gospel words and good deeds. It's that simple. We plant churches. Once we gather a group of disciples, a missional community is formed. Once we gather a group of missional communities, a church is formed. And as people are being changed by the gospel, that changes the way they work. That changes the way they neighbor. That changes the way they handle their finances. That changes the way they look at the poor and they serve our city. So as disciples are made, we are also making our cities better places to live. So there it is. That's the purpose of Sacred City. And if you're a Christian, that is your purpose as well. Make disciples, plant churches, renew the city. That's the unstoppable mission of God. God is, we get to partner with him in the renewal of all things. God is making all things new. And even though the the culture around us, it seems like it's getting darker and it seems like things are getting worse and things are getting more out of control. They're not out of control from the man with the sovereign hand and the sovereign plan. The God who's in charge of all things. And when things get darker, that's when the light shines out all the clearer. And we have been written into this story to declare that and to display that to our watching neighbors and friends and family. This is where our lives can have a deeper meaning. Jumping in to the unstoppable mission of God. Can I ask you, is that what you're living for? Is that what gives your life meaning? Meaning? 
Is that what gives you purpose? Anything else is going to be taken from you. This is the only thing that's going to go on in the afterlife. God is renewing all things until heaven comes down and Jesus Christ sets up his kingdom on this earth and we have this new, newly created earth that we all get to dwell in forever in the glory of God. But who? Only those who have been written into God's story. Only those who are joining him in the mission of God to renew all things. Is that you this morning? See, as we come to the table, we're getting to taste some of that new creation. See, this covenant uh, meal, this is Jesus' body and blood that's been broken for us. This is a promise for the redemption of all things. Just like Jesus' body was broken, but then he was resurrected, so too will our bodies be broken, like Stephen. But there's a greater glory than our personal comfort and our ease. Stephen saw it. What motivated Stephen to give his life? He saw the glory of God above all things. And he willingly laid down his life because God is glorious. Have you seen the glory of God? If you've seen the glory of God, you, you realize that, that, that you can't give anything up. There is no sacrifice you can make for Jesus. There is no sacrifice. He's made the ultimate sacrifice for us. And he's given us so much, there's nothing we could do that's really a sacrifice to him. As we come to the table, remember that this morning. And if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, I invite you into the mission of God, that you're hearing the words that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, And you can't, none of us, we're sinners here. All of us are sinners this morning. All of us are sinners. Your sin won't keep you out of heaven. Your unbelief in Jesus, which is a sin, your unbelief in Jesus will keep you out of heaven. Will you place your faith in the God man who came down and sparked this fire, the mission of God that's going to renew everything? Will you put your faith in him this morning? Will you believe in him this morning? Let your life have a deeper meaning. Father, we thank you that your hand and your sovereign plan, that everything is in your control. Even when we fear, even when devastation hits, you are in control and you are working out your great mission to be known and to be worshiped in all the world. Father, right now, would you send your Holy Spirit to convert like you did Saul? Would you let that just pop in our hearts and in our spirits? Would you do your work? And Father, as believers are convicted right now for their unbelief in the mission of God, and as we're convicted for our lack of being on mission, our lack of sharing the gospel with our friends and neighbors and coworkers, would you convict us? But not just to make us feel guilt and shame, but would you point us to Jesus who is the perfect missionary on our behalf who came and lived his life perfectly for the glory of God? Would you let that spotless life? Would you remind us that it's counted for us by faith? That we're only made right with God by grace, through faith, in Christ? And God, would you stir us up to plant churches? Would you stir us up to make disciples? Would you stir us up to build new missional communities? Would you stir us up to be all about your mission on this earth? for your glory, for your name, for our city, for our friends, for our families. Would you do this, great God? We worship you this morning. In Jesus' name.